Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel Ben-Koren. This week, we interview the scientist Nessa Carey about gene editing and the implications gene editing has for society in the future. Daniel, tell us about the conversation. So yeah, we had Nessa Carey, who's a professor of biology at Imperial College London, and she has a new book out called Hacking the Code of Life, How Gene Editing Will Rewrite Our Futures. It's obviously a hugely consequential issue and topic that will have massive implications for society. And we had Nessa Carey interviewed by Zand Van Tulliken. He's a doctor and TV presenter who mostly focuses on science documentaries. We hope you enjoy listening. And if you're interested in coming to any of the Intelligence Squared events in London, check out our website at intelligencesquared.com. We can offer our listeners a special 20% discount. Just type in the promo code podcast at the checkout. This autumn, we have a special event series called She Speaks, a season of women's voices looking at female empowerment and women speaking out. So we have three events that you can buy for the price of two. Just check out our website. We hope you enjoy listening. Hello, I'm Zand Van Tulliken. I'm a doctor. I'm a BBC television presenter. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other Intelligence Squared events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Nessa Carey, biologist, author of Hacking the Code of Life, How Gene Editing Will Rewrite Our Futures, among other books. Um, I should say, first of all, I have a cold and Nessa has a cold, so you can't, whichever one of us does more talking, um, we're still going to sound a little blocked up. Um, Nessa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. So uh, it seemed as I was kind of going through your bio, I felt more and more excited about reading the book. And then the book is this extraordinary tour of what's going on. It feels to me like at the moment we're at a unique moment um, in terms of our ability to manipulate genes. Is that right? Oh, it's completely right. I mean, gene editing is... It's the biggest thing that's happened in biology for decades and it's certainly the biggest thing in terms of the impact it's going to have on everybody on this planet and on the planet itself. It's the most extraordinary technology and it will allow us to do an incredible range of things and it's phenomenally easy to use which is both the brilliant thing about it and the terrifying thing about it because it's democratising the ability to alter the genetic script of any organism that we want to. Now, can we? I think lots of people who who aren't gene scientists would would believe that we've been able to manipulate genes in some way for many years. And certainly, when I was at medical school, we could take genes out of a mouse and put them into a mouse. We could make mice fluorescent. We could do all kinds of things like this. We've known that drug companies can put genes into bacteria to make them make things like insulin. So, what's 
when you talk about gene editing in the book, there is a new thing. And I, I think often in science, we hear there's a new thing. It's going to change the world. It's a big deal. And 10 years later, we never hear about it again. I don't think this is like that. I, I think you're absolutely right. This is totally different. So what has happened in the last decade that's new? So what's happened is we've sort of gone from having valves in radios to suddenly having the silicon chip in our phones. That's what's happened in biology. We've had a leap that big in the space of about six years because six, seven years. This was really first identified gene editing in 2012. And what's the, the, the what, 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 do we have another word for it or do we just So, yeah. So gene editing, it's more technical term is CRISPR, which stands for Clustered Repetitive Interspersed Palindromic Repeat Sequences. Okay. And I remember, I mean, CRISPR came along and I had a friend call me up, not a scientist, he makes toothpicks and he said, what's this CRISPR thing? It's going to change the world. They're going to be yep. able to turn a small dog into a big dog. It's <laughs> going to be amazing. And he was, his mind was, he'd listened to one radio program. Yep. And since, and I thought, come on, mate, we all listen to the radio. This is not a big deal. I I was wrong. Oh, it is such a big deal. The thing about gene editing, about CRISPR, is that it's an unbelievably simple system to change the DNA of any organism with exquisite sensitivity. Previous types of gene modification, GM, that we've heard about for exactly the things you said, the -the glow-in-the-dark mice, but also GM crops and some types of gene therapy, Those were really quite cumbersome technologies. They worked at very low efficiency. It could take years to get the experiments done. They they were really important, but they were so hard to commodify, basically. Gene editing just wiped all of that away. We're now at a stage with gene editing in just the seven years since it was first developed, where you can look at the DNA alphabet in a human, which is basically 3,000 million letters, and using gene editing, you can change one of them. I, I one out didn't of three know that billion. we could do that. That that is extraordinary. That's unbelievable, and we can do that in any species you like. So we know that we have diseases that are what we call single point mutations. Yeah. One of those four letters in DNA has been swapped out for the wrong one, and it causes a, a, a huge problem. In theory, we could fix that now. In theory, we could fix that now. Clinical trials will be starting very soon. We can guarantee into sickle cell disease and thalassemia, where there's mutations in the haemoglobin genes. Those are going to be treated with gene editing. And if it works, you'll have to give the patient this one-shot treatment and they'll never need to take drugs again. So this, so far, sounds incredibly exciting. I've had loads of patients with sickle cell. I used to work at King's in South London. Mm -hmm. Um, Loads of patients with thalassemia. That's all good news. But can we, before we get into how the CRISPR works, all the, all the, all the possibilities, there's one big headline story that I think we, we want to talk about. So can we start by talking about He Jiankyu, who is yes. from the Southwest Southern University of Science and Technology in Shenzhen in China. Explain what he did and why it's such a big deal. So without wanting to go to Monty Python, we would now all classify him as a very naughty boy. Um, what he did was what people knew was technically possible. But in most countries, we've been approaching in a very conservative fashion and trying to work together scientists along with ethicists, along with healthcare professionals, patient groups, etc., which was to change the DNA of an individual while they're a tiny embryo. Now, the thing is, if you change the DNA of an individual while they're a tiny embryo, You don't just change the DNA and say their muscle cells or in their bone marrow cells like you would for sickle cell disease. You're changing everything. And that means you're changing the DNA in the eggs or the sperm, depending on whether it's a female or a male. 
if you've made that change, that gene edit, it doesn't just affect that person. It's going to be passed on to their kids. That's what he's done. He's edited two embryos, two girls, twins, re-implanted those embryos into the mother, and she gave birth to these twins. Their DNA has been changed forever, and they will pass on their change to their children. And it's just been really, really unfortunate. So there are, there are a lot of very strange aspects of the story. Oh, yeah. Initially, the way that he released the information was not through a peer-reviewed journal. Um, it was kind of a, a – how did he do it? Well, it was it, online? It was, it was on a press conference? It was at a conference. Yeah. It was at a conference, and it was a conference that was partly about debating how do we think about the future of gene editing, and particularly germline gene editing, which is what this is, and how do we build consensus to move forward? So you've got everybody having these very abstract debates and then suddenly this guy goes, oh, by the way, do you want to see my slides? I've done it. These girls have been born and there's another pregnancy in progress at the moment. So nobody's actually seen all the data. It's never been published. So the, the, a lot of the stories in the press have said he kind of went rogue. He's a rogue scientist doing this thing. He, he, clearly, he, he can't have been acting completely alone. Um, there was some suggestion that the Chinese government or at least the local regional government was funding and that the plan to do what he did was on his funding application how much first i guess first of all do you think he definitely did it it's a grab for attention uh, we haven't seen the data we haven't met the twins there's been no out external verification of it this would be a good way of, ra- of of stimulating the debate do you think he really did it and and can you fill us in a bit more about that stuff yeah i think he's probably really done it um because i just don't think he'd be crazy enough to say he'd done it if he didn't have enough backup data Um, I think he's almost certainly done it. And he had signalled beforehand that he was planning to do it to a number of people, all of whom told him it was an exceptionally bad idea. In terms of whether he not he had regulatory approval, the stories are really confused. I actually work in China a lot. I've spent a lot of time in China in the last couple of years. And it's a fascinating, amazing place. But one thing that's very clear when you work in China is that things like regulatory frameworks are extraordinarily complex and really difficult to follow in any field. So there are suggestions that the ethical approval that he sought, that the review panel who was reviewing it had no idea what he was really intending to do. They couldn't really review it in a meaningful way. It's not clear where he got the funding from. It's not clear if the government knew beforehand that this is what he was planning to do. It has, however, backfired horrifically for him on a personal level because the Chinese authorities have recognised really quickly this is doing nothing for their desire to become acceptable members of the scientific community. Yes. They really want Chinese science to have a good global reputation, and this has shot it to pieces again. So before we get... I've got lots of questions about the ethics, but in terms of the example of He Jiankyu in China, um, do you think... How much do we know about what what he did in terms of what it's likely to do? We, We know that he put in a gene that will make them more resistant to HIV infection, but possibly will make them more vulnerable to a flu infection. Yeah. Is, regardless of whether or not that's a useful thing that you'd want or choose for your children or choose for yourself? One of the things that's really difficult about this case is that it's very difficult to avoid falling into the trap of saying, well, this is disastrous because he's done it wrong. Okay. Technically. So, you know, the from the little that can be worked out from the slides that he presented, he's done this really quite horribly in scientific terms. It's just not elegant. So he's inactivated a particular gene. 
um, to try and create a resistance that is found in about 10% of Caucasians to HIV. He hasn't actually introduced the same change that is present in Caucasians who are resistant. He's just basically blasted the gene into non-function. It's also not clear if he did it at the right stage of embryo development, so it's not clear if all the cells in the girls have exactly the same change in them. But so I th- it could be, I know you've written quite well about, yeah. sorry to cut no, this, no, go so ahead. you've written about mosaics a bit, yeah. that although um, we think of all our cells as having the, cells as having the same DNA, yeah. in fact, um, you can be made up of cells, cells with different DNA in them. You can sometimes. I mean, basically, humans are about 70 trillion cells, which is an insane number. And in most of us, with the exception of the cells of the immune system, all those cells have the same DNA. Yeah. But it's possible if he's done the gene editing badly, and so only some of the cells in these embryos were changed, that what he's now got is girls who their bodies are a mix of cells that have a normal copy of this gene and an abnormal copy of this gene. We also don't know if he managed to inactivate both copies of the gene. So there's so much we don't know about it. But I think we do have to address a really important question, which is that even if he'd done it all really, really well scientifically, would that make it all right? And I would argue it still doesn't make it all right. And so that's very interesting because I uh, your book was maybe more positive about gene editing than I felt. Quite persuasive, uh-huh. um, but but I was surprised at how positive it was. Is do you imagine a world in which if we could perfect the science to alter particular genes in embryos, uh, that would be overall a good thing and a thing we should be doing in human embryos? I think I'm positive about gene editing in most circumstances. The germline gene editing is one of the ones, one of probably the two areas where I feel slightly more ambivalent. I do, however, think the fact that gene editing now, if done well, could completely ablate a particular genetic disease in a family, I think does shift the ethical question quite a lot. And I think the ethical question has now changed from, do we have the right to intervene? So do we have the right not to? So could you write a regulatory framework that just said you're allowed to do the following diseases? This is where it goes. Thalassemia, sickle cell, cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy. It's not, it's not a long list. Uh, let's do those, but everything else is off the table. Height, intelligence, eye colour, hair colour, baldness, longevity. Let's get rid of all that. So most of those you wouldn't tackle with germline anyway. You'd probably, certainly sickle cell, You, if the clinical trials work, you're going to do it with somatic therapy. You're not going to change. So we have to differentiate between disease treatments, which are just for the individual. So which ones would you do with germline? With germline, I think it would have to be the absolutely devastating ones. It would have to be the ones such as progeria, where children are born and by the time they're 10, they have the body of a 70-year-old. Okay. Um, It would have to be for stuff that is absolutely devastating. Leshnihan's disease, horrible, horrible disease. The boys are in agony with it. I think you could possibly argue things like spinal muscular atrophy, the very severe forms of that, where the babies are born and they are going to die if they have the most severe form. So I think you could argue there are cases which are so devastating and the impact is so well defined that we absolutely know that having that mutation will have a horrific outcome for the individual. I think then in those cases, I think maybe that does shift the ethical question to what right do we have not to do it? And there'll be listeners, I think, wondering why with better embryo screening and selection, we couldn't just pick the embryo without Leshnion. 
So one of the problems with that is that it means you're having to move to in vitro fertilization. Um, so you're doing a test tube baby approach. And the problem is you get very few embryos. So you can be extremely unlucky. They may all be carrying the mutation. I think germline editing is, or even for severe diseases, is always going to be the very last option that anyone will use because it's going to be so technically demanding. The regulatory framework is quite rightly going to be really, really rigid. I think, though, when we start looking at other conditions, it becomes much more difficult to decide what is acceptable and what is not. And one of the cases that I talk about in the book is the issue of deafness, profound congenital deafness, which is often caused by mutation. Now, a hearing couple who discover that they're carrying the genes for profound deafness, they might think it devastating to have a child mm. who is born who is deaf. For a deaf couple, having a child born who is deaf may actually be the preferred outcome. What do we do in those circumstances? Would we allow a hearing couple to choose gene editing so that they can never have a deaf child? Would we allow a deaf couple to choose gene editing so they absolutely guarantee to have a deaf child? It's a really difficult one. Who decides when something is so bad that we have the right to intervene? Yes, and those are, I guess those are debates that we already to some extent face in medicine, that there are couples who would resist having cochlear implants and things yeah. like this. There is debate around those yeah. things. So are there, I, the, the thing I'm, so there's a very small number of diseases where you could you could justify economically or even the medical necessity of actually in, intervening in the germline by which you mean you would permanently alter somebody's DNA yeah. so they would pass it on. So if there's, say, a devastating disease going down one side of a family, if you alter the DNA in the offspring being born in that mm. side of the family, the disease dies out. So what about, um, but I guess I, I think lots of people look at gene editing and go, the, maybe the appeal of the story of gene editing is a kind of sci-fi fantasy. Yeah. It's, the reason, it's the reason we read books to escape ourselves. Um, we, at the moment, have limited ways of improving ourselves or our children. You can go to the gym, you can hire a tutor or a nanny, yeah. you can try and send them to a better school. But the possibility of going, I could make my life better for my kids if I paid for a scientist in China or in Boston, Massachusetts yeah. or somewhere to alter the embryo or alter the, the sperm and the egg so that they would be faster, higher, stronger. Is That feels to me very seductive. You're guaranteeing the next many generations for your kid, um, uh, for, your, for your family, of having traits that we have yeah. positive feelings about. Is that a thing that feels like it's looming? Is it, is it looming? I really hope not. Theoretically, some of it could. So you can certainly visualise the way that you could make sure that your descendants would be more muscly, for example. Yes. That would actually be a really simple gene edit to do because we already know how to do that in farm animals. Right. So you could absolutely do that. And with farm animals, am I right? You, you wrote about um, lean muscle and yeah. resistance to cold. I know. That'd be great, wouldn't it? That you're like super muscled and you don't feel the chill. And that's in pigs. That's in so, pigs. So... Um, pigs are close enough i mean we we can use pig insulin in people yeah. so presumably that technology is is a rogue scientist who's worked on those pigs might well go if i want to have an olympian lean muscle lean muscle is yeah. really a valuable thing to do absolutely so you know that that would not be 
beyond the realms of possibility in humans at all. And I think you've identified one of the really key issues is that we don't have global regulation. So it would be impossible to do that in the UK at the moment because it would be so against the law. Mm -hmm. um, it would be impossible to do it in the US. But this technology is so powerful and so simple to implement that actually it would be more than possible for clinics in ethically rogue states to offer that kind of service. So if you were a, a large, wealthy state that has a history of running your Olympic or your, mm -hmm. your Olympic teams in a way that you're already doing doping, you're already selecting yep. children very young and putting them through very intense programs. I mean, it's not, it's not, we know there are superpowers that do this. Yeah. Um, it feels to me like it would be very, if you were running, if you were head of the Russian Olympic team and you yep. weren't reading the CRISPR literature carefully, yep. you'd be in danger of losing your job. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you could definitely use this to create more muscled individuals. What you need is access to the right CRISPR reagents, really easy to do. The more difficult bit is you need access to an in vitro fertilisation clinic and obviously a woman who's willing to donate the eggs, etc., and to be re-implanted. But these, of are, that not, would, I mean, those have, are not, I mean, these are not problems. difficult to No, to they get are not. To. Much harder are things like intelligence, which we don't even know how to measure, let okay. alone understand at a genetic level how intelligence is created. And things, even things like speed, yes, you could possibly, I imagine, start shifting things like the percentage of fast and slow muscle fibres, but pff, how well that would work, I don't know. Right, Usain Bolt is not a, a single gene mutation, no, or a, he's a, not. Different, a different allele yeah. away from me, is he? He, he has a vast combination of... Um, bone, muscle, as well as intelligent coordination yeah. and, and genes for determination, grit, perseverance, passion, yeah. those sorts of things, calmness and performance under pressure. That, that Those are Absolutely. polygenetic and environmental. You might well be able to use gene editing to create somebody who has the perfect muscle mass for, say, uh, muscle distribution for weightlifting. Might turn out they're a kid who hates weightlifting. Right. Or just wants to sit and play video games all day and just right. turns into a very muscled, quite podgy kid. You, you can't guarantee they will turn out to be a fantastic athlete. So in a way, the surprising thing about the story in China is that he said it at the conference. Yeah. Actually, a state-sponsored or a private lab that was discreetly offering these services to rich people or to state mm -hmm. institutions feels to me like if it doesn't already exist, it would be surprising if it didn't exist in 10 years. Is that your instinct? Where, where do you feel about the, the secret world in this? Yeah, I think that's um, a very good point. And I think where we might see more pressure for that is actually not so much in the almost cosmetic stuff, but in rich individuals who live in healthcare systems which are very expensive. So America, California. yeah, anywhere in the US where basically despite Obamacare, it's still incredibly expensive to get yes. good access to healthcare. Actually, somewhere like China, people are very surprised. In China, everyone thinks well, it'll be a communist state, therefore fabulous national healthcare. It's not. You want good healthcare in China, you pay for it. Yes. Now, if you know that there's a condition in your family that isn't going to kill your kids immediately, but does mean that, for example, their health insurance is always going to be very high or that might limit them taking particular types of jobs. If you're a rich individual and you can get your embryos edited, then if your kids no longer have that disadvantage they are going to benefit and their offspring are going to benefit from your wealth just by changing their DNA in a way that poorer individuals carrying the same mutation can't carry out for their 
decades. So you could actually start in private healthcare systems to start solidifying inequality based on wealth. So that that to me is is one of the most significant issues. We know already that health insurance companies are looking at genetic mm-hmm. testing to so they stop being insurance companies and they stop spreading risk and they are simply yeah. selecting people who are cheap to yeah. insure. So we know they're doing genetic testing already. Um, we know that they're monitoring gym activity and sedentary lifestyle. We know that mm-hmm. they're testing for things like smoking yep. to reduce their risk further. Is is there a point where they're going to say, oh, you've got the gene. If you want insurance, you'll have your genes altered. It'll be a while before we get to that point, I think. Um I think what would probably be more likely, though I am making this up as I go along right now, is that a rich individual in the scenario we talked about could have their kid's embryo edited. And then if the insurance company, yeah, Yeah. then you just go, no, no, I'm sure my kids are fine. Here, do the genetic testing on them. They don't have the gene. They don't need the high insurance premiums. So a few technical, so so we've kind of, we're getting a bit of a picture of the sort of, I mean, I know I've focused on the more terrifying bits of it, the more Jurassic Park stuff, but but um, if if I had sickle cell yep. and I enter one of these clinical trials that are about to start or mm-hmm. have already started? They, sh- they should be starting quite soon. Okay. So so tell me about what what will happen in my body with that clinical trial. What, what are they attempting to do? So what the plan is in sickle cell disease is to take bone marrow cells from patients with sickle cell disease, take them out of the bone marrow, treat them in the lab with the gene editing technology so that you change those cells so that instead of producing red blood cells that have the sickle cell or the thalassemia mutation and which therefore go all abnormal, what you do is you create cells which have the normal genotype, the normal gene, and therefore will produce the healthy protein. Once you've done that, you then put them back into the patient. Those cells will migrate naturally back to the bone marrow, reseed the bone marrow, and start producing red blood cells, which are just like the blood cells of somebody who doesn't have sickle cell disease. So do you, it's maybe unfair to grill you about this because it's not your company or your no. trial, but do, do, we know, do you need a bone marrow transplant to do this? Then? No, no, no. You use the patient's own bone marrow. That's so you, the beauty of it. So there's no rejection issues or anything like that. And how do we stop them continuing to make as well as the new haemoglobin how do we stop them making the old haemoglobin which if it's circulating will still cause a problem well one of the things with sickle cell disease um as i suspect we both know is that the patients who already have one mutant version of the gene and one normal version of the gene are absolutely fine most of the time they're just carriers with the patients who have two mutant copies you actually only need to change one of them to normal and they'll be fine okay Now, it will depend on what percentage of the bone marrow cells you actually convert to making normal haemoglobin. So I suspect that one of the first things that's going to happen in this trial is that they'll be looking to see things like how big a percentage of the bone marrow cells do you have to treat in order to stop developing the symptoms of sickle cell disease. So they won't be expecting with the first patients that there'll be an absolute cure. They'll be looking at things like when you take the bone marrow out of the patients, what percentage of those cells can you get to correct the mutation? Once you've corrected them and you put them back into the bone marrow, do they all survive or do some of them die? And then what percentage is that of all the cells that are producing red blood cells do you need to create so the patients don't get these horrible symptoms anymore? So the first experiments, because that's really what the clinical trials are, they're experiments in humans, will really be about getting these parameters right. 
about saying, okay, we need to treat this many bone marrow cells. We need to get that many bone marrow cells back into the bone marrow. And then once they understand that much more, it will become easier to create a standard protocol that they can use for future patients. It's going to be a long path, but it is probably the most exciting thing that's happened in sickle cell treatment for a very long time. Absolutely. And and what's what's maybe interesting about that is that that is not uh, a problem that has had a huge amount of money invested in because it disproportionately affects people from, mostly from sub-Saharan Africa yep. who live in areas where that confers some advantage, historically it's conferred an advantage Absolutely. to, to, to pr- protecting you against malaria. Yep. Um, are there any... There any targets at the moment that a rich person, someone with very deep pockets and no regard for international regulations, could set up a lab and say, "Improve this about me"? Do we have any any? We're really talking about single genes. Yeah. Are there are there any targets where I could say, "Make me make me better at the moment," and we could reasonably identify those genes? Do you mean better in terms of make me not unwell, or do you mean better in terms of a cooler? Any of it, really. I I think there's this, there's an idea. I think we're living, you know, now every podcast you listen to, possibly including this one, we're advertising 23andMe, um, the the gene testing companies. We're we're living in an era where people are increasingly aware of the influence of genes on their lives in terms of longevity and all aspects of health. So maybe you're not severely ill, but your cholesterol's a bit up, your blood pressure's a bit up. Um, Both your parents didn't, you know, didn't, didn't live that long. Are there, do we have good targets at the moment for any of that? The best targets for gene editing at the moment are the single gene disorders. Okay. Now, we always think single gene disorders are not a big thing, that they're always very rare. But about 1% of people have a single gene disorder, which causes varying degrees of difficulty for them. Sometimes it's almost neonatal lethal. Other times you might be in your 60s before you develop symptoms. Single gene disorders will always be the best ones to tackle with gene editing. And in theory, they're all potentially ones that could be targets. The problem with them isn't actually the gene editing. You can take cells from a patient and you can correct them in a test tube. You can turn the gene into the right thing. That's not the same as being able to correct it in the patient. With so many of these conditions, you'd have to keep doing it over and over again because the cells die off or you just couldn't get the gene editing reagents to the right bit of their body so, so the, the lovely thing about sickle cell is that the problem is the blood cells the blood cells yeah. are made by the bone marrow and we can alter that thing that makes if you if you think of blood as an organ we can alter the thing that makes the organ absolutely but if we want to permanently change your lungs or your liver much we're, we're going to have to keep doing it. well the liver's a great one actually the liver is one of the easier ones and will probably be the next target organ after um really after sickle cell. And it's because the liver's main job, it's our detox organ. Practically anything that goes into the body that's recognised as foreign gets wiped out by the liver. Okay. So if you have a liver condition, the, li- the liver is great at taking stuff up and chopping it up, Ch- taking stuff out of our bloodstream, chopping it up to get rid of toxins, foreign nasties, whatever you want to think of them. One of the big problems when you're trying to treat people, especially in the past when we were trying to use gene therapy, etc., was you inject the gene therapy into the patient's bloodstream, it passes through the liver and the liver destroys everything, takes up those gene therapy reagents and breaks them up and they never get, say, to the brain or the heart or whatever tissue you're trying to treat. That's a real pain unless what you're trying to treat is a liver condition. So if you're trying to do that with gene editing, that's brilliant. 
You inject the gene editing reagents into the bloodstream, they go to the liver, the liver recognises them as foreign, takes them up into the liver cells, breaks them down, as in sort of opens up the packaging, and then fantastic, those reagents are exactly where they need to be to change things in the liver. So liver conditions may be the next big thing after sickle cell disease. That's very exciting. There's a ton of things I want to cover. I mean, I guess, I guess first of all, I'm thinking, even before you start interfering with humans, surely we can deal with all the bacteria that attack us, with all the parasites, we can make our food better, we can make the animals better. I want to get onto that. But just a, a bit more about the humans. What exactly are the gene reagents? When, when I was training, we used to put the idea was we would put a gene in a virus. Mm-hmm. Viruses infect your cells and they use your genetic um, yeah. machinery to, to put out the genes and then you could maybe have those viruses distribute genes. I, I don't think there is yet a single successful viral um, gene therapy that's sort of largely marketed anywhere in the world. Is that true? Yeah, gene therapy has been one of those things that goes through this constant cycle of best thing since sliced bread, wouldn't give it to my dog, best yeah. thing since sliced bread. It just hasn't really delivered on the promise. And it's not because the idea of gene therapy is bad. It's because it's all the boring bits, like how do you get the gene therapy into the right cells? How so do you get why it is home? CRISPR different then? Like- CRISPR is different for two brilliant no. reasons. One reason is that it's really easy to package up the CRISPR reagents into a really small virus, right? So it's very easy to get it into the system. Because CRISPR gene editing really relies on just two main things. You've got to make a stretch of RNA, which is a molecule very like DNA, very Mm -hmm. like our genetic material. And you have to have a particular enzyme that acts like a pair of molecular scissors. So this is the simplest version of gene editing. So you stick that into cells or into a body. The virus gets into the cells. Viral coat comes off. And the bit of RNA, the bit that's like our DNA, migrates into the nucleus where our own DNA is held. Mm. And it will just scan along our DNA until it finds a region that it matches. And if you've designed that bit of RNA really carefully, it will only match one place in our entire genome. It will bind there. And when it does, by binding there, it enables those scissors, that enzyme, to cut the DNA. And the enzyme is the the CRISPR. Is CRISPR is the name of the enzyme? Cas9 is the name of the enzyme. Cas9 is the it's CRISPR Cas9. So CRISPR yeah. is the method. Cas9 is the yeah. enzyme itself. There there are various new updated versions of Cas, but that's the basic way it worked. And, and Cas9 is a a bacterial enzyme that the original job in the bacteria was to insert bacterial DNA into other cells. Is that right? No. Okay. Will you explain <laughs> it then? Right. <laughs> this system. It's from bacteria. It's absolutely from okay. bacteria. And what we real, what scientists realised was that, you know the way in humans, right, you and I have hacking coughs and colds at yes. the moment, but in a couple of weeks' time, if somebody in, tr- infects us with the same virus that's causing this, we'll be immune. Yes. Our immune systems will have adapted. Bacteria can do exactly the same. If bacteria are infected by a virus, they remember and they're able to fight off that virus in the future. And the way that they do it is through the CRISPR-Cas9 system. So what happens is the bacterium takes in a bit of the virus's DNA, it places it between two other bits of DNA from itself, and then the next time the virus comes in, that bit of viral DNA that's in the bacterial genome finds the bit that it matches in the virus, and the molecular scissors come along and chop up the virus's genetic material. It's that an is, adaptive immune response in bacteria. Okay. That's a lo- so, so, so CRISPR is originally a part of the bacteria's immune system. Yeah, basically. And, and so it's, it, it works by chopping up viral DNA? It does. Or viral genetic material, I viral should say. Viral genetic material. So 
what the first person who identified these CRISPR, these repeats in bacteria, realised was that you had a sequence of DNA that was exactly the same and was repeated multiple times in the bacterial genome and in lots of different bacterial genomes, but that the bits in between those um, repeated sequences varied enormously. And that was because they reflected the history of which viruses had previously infected that bacterium and which ones it was now immune to. And what researchers started to realise was that actually that meant those bits in between the standard parts of DNA, they were swappable cassettes. You could create basically immunity in a bacterium to a virus it never encountered by giving it this viral bit of DNA. And then they realised that, well, what if we can take that out of bacteria and we can do it elsewhere? That's the whole basis on which which gene editing is based. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. So the... the method for approaching someone now if you've got a whole human in front of you and you alter you want to put a new gene in them it's still a virus delivery system but the thing it's delivering is a very accurate pair of scissors and a very precise dna sequence yeah it's a very targeted dna sequence because those those bits in bacteria which are the bit that stay the same that's basically what the scissors recognize okay and what you can do with crispr now with gene editing now is you can just use it to Um, deactivate a gene but you can also use it to put in a whole gene to a one place in the genome because that was one of the problems with the old types of genetic modification was we could put genes into another organism but they tended to go in in completely random places in the genome and and where you where a gene is in the genome its relationship to promoters to the other sequences that regulate gene expression very important okay incredibly important because otherwise you might um stick something next to a really aggressive on switch and you might start disrupting cell activity in all sorts of undesired ways. With gene editing, you can put in a complete gene exactly where you want it. Or you can just say all that's wrong with the gene that's in there is one of those genetic letters. We'll just change that. So that's one of the reasons why CRISPR is so fantastic because it can do really precise modifications. The other reason why it's so brilliant is once you've made that modification, it's there forever. So if it's a cell that divides, such as the cells that give rise to our skin or to blood cells, when the cell divides, its daughter cells get that same change. On the other hand, if it's like a brain cell or a heart cell, which don't divide, you can still do the CRISPR on it. You can still do gene editing. And if you live for another 80 years, that edit will remain in the cells. It's a one-hit wonder. And now it's time for a short break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash intelligence. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's talk about the potentially amazing things that yeah. can happen. The book is lovely because you kind of discuss a whole pile of things that are constant frustrations with kind of living on planet Earth. Talk about how CRISPR and gene editing can can get us out of some of those problems. So as humans, we're making a horrible mess of the planet. I mean, it's just awful. There are far too many of us. We use the planet really appallingly. So we're leading to a situation where there's massive loss of biodiversity, for example, um, often because of our desire to have more and more food, which we create and grow in incredibly inefficient ways. CRISPR gene editing actually could have an enormous impact on things like food crops. So, for example, lots of crops are really difficult to breed if you want to create new varieties or you want to create new characteristics They've got horribly complicated DNA structures. And you have to wait for years and years and years until you've got exactly the right set of combinations of genes that you want. With gene editing, sometimes you can get around that in a single hit. You can do it in a season. So researchers, for example, have been able to create versions of rice, which can grow under conditions of drought. Now, that's going to be really important as climate change takes more of a grip. Lots of agricultural land is contaminated with salt. Researchers have been able to create rice that can tolerate higher levels of salt and create a bigger crop. Now, over a billion people rely on rice as their main form of nutrition. So that's incredibly important. But also because CRISPR is so exquisitely easy to use, it can actually be applied to lots of other crops that particularly subsistence farmers rely on. So one of the criticisms of the old genetic modification techniques was that they had only been applied to crops where there was a really big commercial incentive. So the ones that we're interested in in the highly developed world economically. But yeah, half a billion people rely on things like cassava. Nobody was ever going to try and do expensive genetic modification of cassava. With gene editing, any reasonably competent lab could create modified cassava that might have higher yields or more nutrients or just be more robust. So in terms of positive outcomes, we could see huge improvements in the world's agriculture if we use the technology intelligently. What about animals? 
So animals. Oh, well, one thing we have to remember is we've been mucking about with animals and plants for millennia. Right. We absolutely. So, or my understanding—I don't know much about it—but my understanding is the citrus fruits we eat were not found in nature no. three hundred years ago. Let's say no. that these a, le- a modern lemon, a modern orange, are truly modern inventions. They absolutely are. Almost every food stuff that we eat, we have genetically modified in the past. We just didn't know that's what we were doing. We selected varieties that we liked, that were productive, and we kept breeding those and crossing those. We've done this for millennia. It's basically how human culture developed. If we hadn't been doing selective breeding of crops, we'd never have had big societies. Mm-hmm. We'd never have had the amazing things that we've done as big societies. All that's happening now is instead of looking at two plants and thinking, if I think we cross those, we might get you know a juicier orange or more edible bananas or whatever. What we're doing now is saying, actually, we know the genetic sequences that lead to those desired outcomes. We'll just take an existing plant and we'll change directly the genetic information. So we're shortcutting what we've always, always done. We can do the same with animals. And so you get situations, for example, where you can create animals which put on lean meat much faster than they do at the moment. That would be very handy. Um, The Roslyn Institute in Edinburgh has created strains of pigs which will not be susceptible to a particular virus. And this virus is devastating in the pork industry in that you can end up losing entire litters and Mm. entire herds of pigs if this virus gets into the herd. By gene editing, they've been able to create pigs where everything else is normal. They just can't be infected by this virus. Um, China. God, they eat a lot of pork in China. I know, I work there, so there's an awful lot. Um, Sometimes up to 35% of the energy costs of raising pigs in China is because you have to keep pigs warm because they don't have a particular mechanism for keeping themselves warm. By gene editing, you can introduce that mechanism back into pigs. It's found in all other domestic animals. And they don't die of the cold anymore. So we could have fantastic benefits from being able to gene edit other organisms. We could even start creating sources of organ transplant material. There's 20 people a day die in the US because they're waiting for a transplant. We might be able to modify pigs so that we can start using, say, pig hearts in transplants amazing benefit for human health. On the one hand, it, you know, my, my area of interest is public health, global health. Uh, I've worked in famines. I've worked with extremely deprived populations who would enormously benefit from lots of the things you're saying. I guess I see that there is a flip side of it. If yeah. we think of the engineering we've already done, things like um, making uh, pesticide-resistant crops, we have created monocultures of wheat that have been devastatingly bad for the environment. I know you write about Greenpeace objecting to GMO crops, and I'm, I always feel torn with that. On the one hand, I think feed the world. On the other hand, GMO crops have benefited the companies that have made them more than anybody else. And perhaps a world where we go, let's rather than a new strain of wheat, what we actually need to do is trade differently, farm differently, um, treat other people. It's a bit of a utopian vision, but... I, I feel like there's a side of gene editing that will benefit the rich more than the poor that will increase global inequality and that maybe leans into thinking about the natural world not as a complex system, that a pig or a sheep becomes a mechanism for wool production rather yeah. than a, a living organism. And I, I know from you, I'm, I, at least I'm guessing from the person that you, you seem to be, but also your interest in yeah. ecology, uh, vulnerability, the natural world, that these are things you care about. How, how do you balance it all out in your mind? For me, the big conundrum here is that there is beautiful science 
behind gene editing. Beautiful potential, which unfortunately is going to come smack up against our species capacity to be unbelievably stupid. Right. So one of the things that always frustrates me is when you hear we can't produce enough food to feed the world. Of course we can. But we cannot at the moment produce enough feed, uh, enough food if we are going to have things like 30% of global food is wasted before it ever gets to the people who would eat it. If we have a situation where everybody wants to move to a meat-based diet and a situation where everybody is becoming obese, we cannot sustain that. And it does actually really worry me that we look for technological solutions. Now, gene editing is a very good technological solution to increasing food production. I actually share what I think are probably the same concerns as yours is that we will use gene editing because we are more comfortable to use technological solutions than we are to make fundamental changes to society and fundamental changes to our own selfish desires. Mm. If we could fix those problems of excessive meat consumption, excessive waste and excessive consumption, we wouldn't need to use gene editing or monocultures of any kind in the enormous way that we use them at the moment. And on the one hand, gene editing could be great because it could mean, for example, that we can keep agricultural land, which at the moment we could consider contaminated by salt, we would be able to keep that in production. But what if somebody uses it the other way around? What if farmers, especially in areas of less prosperity, think, oh, with this new variety of wheat, I can start planting a bit further out. And then we, we lose yet more biodiversity. So I'm torn because I love the applications of this. I think they're incredibly valuable. But I'm just worried that we will once again try and science our way out of a problem that actually is much more of a social problem. Your background, I think, is interesting because you deal with complexity a lot. Um, you've dealt with human society. Um, you've looked at ecology. You've looked at, at the corporate world. And I sometimes wonder with things like this, they, they, a, lot of, a lot of particularly biomedical science is not driven by complexity. It is, it is um, elegant technical solutions in complicated systems, but systems that don't, we don't think of as being very, very interactive. The bits that make me most nervous are where we, uh, I've heard people talking about using CRISPR to remove antibiotic resistance, uh -huh. um, to alter viruses in ways that would get rid of them. And we've tried the war on infectious disease before, but we, we live in a microbiological world. We are covered yeah. in microorganisms. And any fiddling with that seems to me to really begin to feel like like the scene in Jurassic Park where Jeff Goldblum goes, yeah. nature finds a way. Absolutely. That, that doesn't seem glib to me. That seems like a very profound insight into, into how the microbiology yeah. is impossible for us to engineer. I, I think the ability to alter microbes, I think is dangerous from two points of view. One, of, one is doing it sort of officially because we are incredibly bad at predicting the consequences of letting modified organisms or just organisms that shouldn't be in a particular mm. environment into another environment. And that really worries me. And gene editing can be used to change things very quickly, but nothing works as quickly as mutation rates in bacteria and viruses. I mean, the speed with which they adapt is terrifying. The other thing that worries me is that what if people deliberately want to use this technology irresponsibly to change bacteria or Which viruses? Which is, there's a lovely airport thriller called I Am Pilgrim. Uh-huh, yeah, plot, yeah. without no spoilers, but yeah. that he engineers a new kind yeah. of smallpox that the vaccination yeah. won't work against. 
So you're that this is also something that's definitely in people's consciousness. Surely, surely there are people thinking about this. There might well be. What is less clear is how on earth do we stop this? This is such an accessible technology. That is its glory and that is its potentially greatest risk. It really is. Um, and we, even in terms of tackling illnesses, gene editing is going to be great for things like single cell disorders eventually. You know, for things like sickle cell, it is the biggest hope that we have. But already people are thinking, how can we use it for, say, type 2 diabetes? Well, yeah, we could try and find a way of using it for type 2 diabetes, but we know perfectly well if we spent a fraction of that money on prevention, we wouldn't have the type 2 diabetes epidemic that we have. And again, it's that whole problem I have with trying to science our way mm. out of problems in terms of molecular science. Public health science is just as important to science and actually has made more impact on human health than probably any other area of science. And we don't give that the money or the funding or the wherewithal to make change. We seem to be obsessed with leaving things to a free market structure, so which doesn't for me work well for healthcare. Can we talk a bit more about that? Because you've worked in the private sector. Clearly, if you want to understand why the world is arranged the way it is, why we'd spend less on public health and more on, on drugs and pills, um, you just have to follow the money. How is this? Um, I know there are patent disputes going on at the moment. Clearly, there's a huge amount of money to be made. Clearly, large corporations would like to control this. I'm sure that Monsanto is looking at how they can use CRISPR to lock down even more of the world's food production. I don't know if legally I can say that, but you know, I would get, I'm, I, look, it'd be mad if they weren't. Can you talk about patents and financial interests, legal issues around it? Is this a democratization of gene editing or is it going to end up in the hands of a small number of extremely rich people? In terms of the basics, the, um, there are huge patent fights going on at the moment in the US and in Europe. Tens of millions of dollars have already been spent on behalf of the universities who are fighting this out. The universities themselves aren't paying the costs. It's being paid by companies who have taken licenses to the intellectual property. But this is a very, very expensive fight because everybody knows this technology is going to be extremely valuable. And is there, is there just one molecule that's up for grabs? Is it that the, the Cas9, if you can patent that, you own it, and if you can't, you don't? Or is no, it more not really. It's more the, the big fight is about whether the 2012 paper by Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna, which showed this technology will work essentially in a test tube, whether or not that overrides 2013 work from another group that said this would work in cells. And so the fight is about that, and it, it's going to keep going on. It's one of those situations where both sides clearly think eventually they can become triumphant. And I think the rest of the world is thinking, oh, just make a compromise. You know, this is silly. Just get on with it. The fact, though, that those universities will own the technology, one or both of them will own the technology, the basics of it, doesn't mean that they will be able to control it. It's much more likely that what they will do is what happened with the first type of recombinant DNA technology, the first genetic modification back in the 70s, which is they'll just issue licenses so that everybody can use it. Okay. So it's not likely that that will happen. They're mad to spend that much on lawyers, aren't they? I mean, tens of millions on lawyers. Is, but is, this is worth billions. Yeah, but half of a billion is still better than locking yourself up. In the oh, I, I'm a big believer that 100% of nothing is nothing and find a compromise yeah. and just start generating income as quickly as possible. But well, who knows? I'm sure there's a good lawyer advising I, um, all of them. I'm but, sure uh, there's a very rich lawyer advising all of them. Um, so so that will eventually be resolved. But that there will, will be, be There will be a handful of 
individuals or organisations who own the, the core molecules and you'll licence them? They'll, they'll own the core technology okay. and you'll licence them. But the likelihood is they, that a lot of this technology will become very freely available. Um, freely in, in the same way that initial genetic modifications did. The real value will lie in things like creating therapeutics. It's, it's going to be the drug discovery okay. model. In terms of agriculture, there are already quite interesting developments occurring, I think partly in response to how bad a press companies like Monsanto got in the past, mm. where it's being recognised that anything that looks like a monopoly grip on agriculture and foodstuffs is a very bad thing. And so we can already see that the mood music is changing and that agricultural technology is going to be much more open than it was in the past. So I don't think we're going to see a repeat of the Monsanto type situation where there was great concern about the amount of leverage one company could have. Is it is it possible, though, with CRISPR that you could um, invest in altering the germline of your pigs? You've got one, one pig who's producing this sort of low-fat, cold-resistant pigs, and um, that no one would ever know you'd done it, that you could say, no, no, we've managed to breed just through normal, natural... That, yep. that it's an undetectable Absolutely. change you're making. Yes, it is. Um, that That is perfectly possible for certain things. And my question would be, then why would we care? If it's undetectable, if you have two lamb chops, right, and you sequence them and they're absolutely identical, but one came from a breed of sheep called a Texel, which many, many generations ago, a particular mutation happened to arise in, and the other came from a few generations back where that same mutation was deliberately introduced by gene editing. If they are genetically identical, why do we care what the intention was several generations back? Yes, I suppose I I don't I have some vague worries about the the, mm-hmm. the, the way that we might the way that we think of sheep and sort of things like this, but those are a bit ethereal and the actual yeah. business of what's on the Oh, I'm plate. a vegetarian, so, you know, I don't even okay, eat, yeah. eat the chop. So, so that, yeah. that, that feels to me like a thing where I, I do worry about the way we might think about animals. But in general, that's less concerning. The, the tinkering with the germlines of humans and with the bacteria and the viruses, I think that some of that does make me feel much more nervous. But yes, I, I agree that in... By the time you've got a particular kind of sheep, how exactly you achieved it. I haven't, at least it makes me nervous, but I can't tell you why. So I guess you win. You win. <laughs> but, it, but it's a very common response. I've done this sometimes when I've talked to six formers about hacking DNA. And I do a kind of vote with them on this. And there is always a hardcore who still say they would not eat the chop if it came from the line which had originally been genetically modified, even though it's identical. And they can't explain why. And I don't ever get into a battle with them about it because those are their feelings. Yeah. You know, it, it's not appropriate for me to say, well, your feelings are wrong. Their feelings are what they are. Um, so it, it's, it's a very my, difficult one. If I can locate my discomfort, it's somewhere in the region of, um, in the same way that there is the possibility of altering children to become different mm-hmm. kinds of athletes. There's a way of believing that we can modify the ecosystem to be more productive for us yeah. with no negative consequences. I think we've fallen, we've done that so many times before in so many ways. We've, we've, yeah. we've, we believe that there won't be consequences. This will be a good thing. And we massively discount the future. We're prepared to degrade our environment much more than we uh. believe we are. And I guess those are, that's the general discomfort. I'd eat the, I'd eat the chop if I thought the sheep was happy and I thought it was yeah. well cooked, etc. But, but that it fits into a broader narrative that makes me uneasy. No, I, I'm detecting a similar thing from you. Actually, completely the same. There is nothing inherently good or bad about this technology. 
The problem with it is it's going to rely on how intelligently we use it. And I don't think our track record as a species is that brilliant. Mm. And I'm not quite sure that anyone yet knows how to deal with that conundrum. But we have really strange situations at the moment. It, it's creating a fantastic Alice in Wonderland type world. So the maddest one at the moment is the European regulators. So this is about crops. And the European regulators, to everyone's astonishment, because it was completely contrary to all the signals that were coming out from the European regulatory system, said that crops that were derived by gene editing will be treated exactly the same as other genetically manipulated crops and will not be allowed to go into the human food chain or into production in Europe. Because in Europe, we grow only a tiny amount of GM mm. crops. Now, so what they've basically said is you can take a plant, let's say wheat or anything else, and you can use gene editing and you can create one very precise mutation in just one spot and you can know exactly what that mutation is, but you're not allowed to propagate that or plant it or sell it. However, you can also take a plant, wheat, whatever it is, you can irradiate the hell out of it to create random mutations or you can treat it with chemicals to create random mutations and then you propagate that. You can sell those, no problem whatsoever. So we have this insane situation where you create a very precise change and you can't create those crops in terms of actually selling them in Europe or you can create God knows what changes and that's absolutely fine because you didn't use genes. Yeah, you didn't use genetic engineering. It's a bit bonkers. Our, our legal system is not keeping up with the science and they need to go hand in hand. It's not that the legal system should just do what the scientists say it should do or what science says is feasible, but we have to have a better way of would, resolving would, these problems. From what you're saying, it might be better to regulate the consequences more heavily than the the the, the method of, of, of genetic modification. So rather than saying we're going to stop you doing one thing, one modification or another, it might be better to say that we're going to very heavily look at what the effects of this kind of wheat are, what its effects on the, you, you know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And what's actually happened in the US in terms of crops is what the regulators have said is, if it is a change that could have happened in nature through crossbreeding, mm. then it doesn't actually matter that you've introduced it using a genetic technique because you could have done it anyway. It just would have taken you 20 years longer, which seems to me a more sensible approach. But we are going to have to do a lot of work to build consensus on this and to find out what people are and are not happy about and why they're not happy about it and work out if those are based on concerns that can be appropriately alleviated or the concerns that we have to accept are just something that people feel very strongly about. I think it's very rare that you encounter a topic and an author who's capable of writing about the topic that genuinely is one of the most important global issues that affects everything from our food supply, our ecology, terrorism, human health, uh, sport, international finance. I feel like there is so much here that I could have asked you about. Um, your book is a fantastic tour through all of this. So, Nessa Kerry, thank you very, very much indeed for coming in and spending some time with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if you'd like to swap lemsips or anything right now, we absolutely can. <laughs>